Hi all, you're listening to At The Bean, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of At The Beam. Um, so, Josh, I have a very important question for you since we're in the summer oh, season. Oh, yeah? What's that? <laughs> I must know. What is your favorite to-go-to flavor of ice cream? The hell kind of question is that? <laughs> we're here to talk to about small better. cell lung cancer, and you're talking to me about ice cream flavors? Yeah, I'm thinking about ice cream at 10 a.m. <laughs> oh, so I am a very poor... Uh, selector of flavors i always go with vanilla bean oh my god i knew you're gonna say that what the hell you're so vanilla oh thank you i appreciate that sentiment i'm so glad we're friends and we're doing this right now wow okay so so vanilla bean is the way to go you get like eddie's vanilla i don't even know what that means but no 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 see the way it works is it's not about the t-shirt it's about the accessories right so vanilla is a good base. So <laughs> what are you have... what are you drenching your ice cream in? Other flavors of ice cream. <laughs> are you just like pouring all the toppings onto your yeah, ice cream? Yeah, everything in there, yeah. Anything okay. I can find in the room or in the house, you know. <laughs> Anywhere from like sprinkles to syrup to cut up hot dogs, you know. Just kind of <laughs> mix it up and try wow. things, you know. You gotta venture out. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I, I've learned something new. I love yeah. it. Vanilla ice cream with cut up hot dogs is the way to go. Let's go. Sounds great. Delicious. <laughs> All right. So um, you're right. We are going to discuss muscle lung cancer today, which is a high-grade neuroendocrine tumor and represents about 15% of lung cancer cases. So small cell lung cancer, it's different from non-small cell in that it is far less common, and it originates from neuroendocrine cells. Microscopically, these are classically described as sheets of small round blue cells with little cytoplasm, distinct nucleoli, and high mitotic rates. The small cell lung cancer tumor cells are also known for being some of the most rapidly dividing cells. So Josh, what is the greatest risk factor for small cell lung cancer? So smoking. Small cell lung cancer occurs most exclusively in former or current heavy smokers. So I'd like to mention that unlike in non-small cell lung cancer, Oncogenic driver mutations such as EGFR, KRAS, and ALK do not seem to play a significant role in the carcinogenesis of small cell lung cancer. Awesome. So let's start with our case. Josh, you're seeing a six-year-old male with an 80-pack year smoking history, progressive non-productive cough over the past six months, and a 10-pound unintentional weight loss. At the insistence of his family, he presents your clinic today. So what else do you want to know? So uh, given the history of a six-month cough and weight loss, I would start with a comprehensive history and physical and conduct a review systems, uh, focusing on the presence of chest pain, dyspnea, voice hoarseness, abdominal pain, bone pain, headaches, nausea, as well as focal neurologic symptoms. I'd also like additional details on his functional status and comorbid conditions, an event that the patient has lung cancer to consider their potential ability to undergo lung resection. On physical exam, I'd uh, focus on the pulmonary and neurologic exams and make sure that he's saturating normally on room air. Great. So he has mild episodic chest pain after cough attacks, but other than that, no symptoms. His appetite has been poor, and aside from hypertension controlled amlodipine, there is no other significant medical history. He's still working at the neighborhood hardware store and walking two to three miles a day. He quit smoking two years ago. 
There are decreased breath sounds at the apex of the left lung. Neurologic exam is normal. What's next? So in a patient with extensive smoking history, chronic cough, unintentional weight loss, and abnormal pulmonary exam findings, my suspicion for lung cancer is high. So I'd first want to see if there are any prior chest x-ray or screening CTs that's available for review. So it's my hope that patients with this amount of prior smoking history are getting low-dose CT scans, but we know that not all primary care physicians are on board to screen their heavy smokers for lung cancer. So ultimately, I'd like to obtain a diagnostic full-dose CT chest with contrast and get basic labs, including a CBC, CMP, and LDH. So why the LDH? So the LDH is a nonspecific marker, but um, elevated levels in patients with small cell lung cancer associated with greater disease burden and worse overall survival. All right. So the patients unfortunately never had any chest imaging before, and the diagnostic CT chest you obtain reveals a six centimeter mass within the left perihilar area with multistation ipsilateral lymphadenopathy extending from the aortic arch to the subcrinal lymph node station. His labs are normal. So what are your next steps? So at this point, the differential would include any of the terrible T's, which include uh, teratoma, thymoma, thyroid tumors, or terrible lymphoma. And of course, mediastinal metastases uh, from lung cancer should be considered as well. So we will need to obtain a biopsy of the mass, preferably through an endobronchial approach, which can also evaluate the airways for any possible source of this tumor. Uh, CT scans can be unreliable to rule out a tumor that's arising from the lining of the central airways. All right, so an endobronchial biopsy is performed and returns as a high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma, positive for TTF1, synaptosizin, and chromogranin A staining. The airways were otherwise reported as normal. What additional imaging studies are needed to complete staging? Yeah, so we need to get a PET scan to assess for additional sites of disease, including the supraclavicular and cervical lymph node stations, as well as distant metastatic sites. Um, all patients that are diagnosed with uh, SCLC, irrespective of stage, should get some form of brain imaging. Preferably, this would be an MRI, since one in five patients can present with intracranial metastasis. All right. So the PET-CT demonstrates intense FDG avidity in the left perihilar mass and ipsilateral mediastinal lymph node stations. His MRI brain is negative. Before we stage him, let's briefly review some syndromes that are commonly associated with small cell lung cancer. Josh, can you name there? a few? <laughs> sure. So uh, a paraneoplastic syndrome that's classically associated with SCLC is Lambert-Eaton syndrome. Uh, so this will be present in less than 5% of patients with SCLC. This is an autoimmune syndrome in which patients will present with weakness in the upper legs and hips, leading to difficulty walking, as well as weakness in the upper arms and shoulders, which can make self-care difficult. Patients with Lambert-Eaton develop an antibody to presynaptic calcium channels in the neuromuscular junction, which clinically manifests this muscle weakness, which characteristically improves with continued contraction. This is unlike myasthenia gravis. Remember that most patients, uh, more than 50% who present with Lambert-Eaton syndrome, have an underlying malignancy, most likely SCLC. But the minority of patients diagnosed with SCLC will have Lambert-Eaton syndrome. So another syndrome to look out for is uh, SIADH, which can cause uvolemic hyponatremia. So Josh, are there any impending clinical situations that we need to be aware of in patients with bulky mediastinal small cell lung cancer? Yeah, so patients with uh, SCLC can also present with SVC syndrome, which is when a mediastinal tumor can grow large enough to obstruct blood flow through the superior vena cava either through external compression 
or direct tumor invasion. So about 10% of SCLC patients will present with SVC syndrome, which can clinically manifest as face plethora, arm swelling, dyspnea, and headaches, representing a clinical emergency that is best avoided. Exactly. So also the severity of SVC syndrome can be graded on a scale, which can further guide management. We won't dive into those details, but we'll link in the show notes. So back to our case, we have our six-year-old male with good performance status and a newly diagnosed limited stage small cell lung cancer with extensive mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Josh, how do we stage small cell lung cancer? So historically, SCLC was designated as limited or extensive stage disease per the VA lung study group two stage classification. In this definition, limited stage was cancer confined to the ipsilateral hemithorax and disease that can be safely encompassed within a single radiation field. So compare this to extensive stage where diseases spread beyond the ipsilateral hemithorax. With um, more modern staging systems, the NCCN combines both the VA and the TNM systems where limited stage SCLC is defined as stage one to three. So this is NET, NEN, and M0 that can be safely treated with definitive RT, excluding T3 and T4 due to multiple lung nodules that are too extensive or have tumor nodal volumes that can be too large to be encompassed in a tolerable radiation plan. Uh, Extensive stage is defined as any M1 disease or T3 to T4 primaries. Excellent. Yeah, so staging actually isn't too difficult to remember for small cell lung cancer since it can be broadly classified into two buckets, mainly driven by whether the cancer can be safely treated uh, to definitive doses within a single radiation port. One thing that is important to remember is that one in five patients gets upstaged extensive disease after initial staging scans. So can you tell me how limited versus extensive stage is determined and who defines it? So it's one of the rare situations where it's up to radiation colleges to confirm whether or not they can treat the tumor within a single radiation therapy treatment plan. Now, when the original VA classification was made, our technologies were limited to 2D treatment planning approaches. But today, each case uh, will be unique and require the expertise of a radiation colleges to confirm whether or not the entire tumor can be targeted safely with a full dose of radiotherapy. Great. So how would you treat this patient that is confirmed to have limited stage disease? So in this patient with node-positive limited-stage SCLC who has a good performance status, I would treat with concurrent CRT, uh, chemo-radiotherapy. So chemo generally consists of cisplatin and etoposide for at least four cycles. Um, With patients with poor kidney function, carboplatin can be used instead of cisplatin. Uh, We'd want to coordinate with medical oncology and treat with radiotherapy as soon as possible, aiming to start with or during cycle one or two of chemotherapy. With respect to radiotherapy, I would treat 45 gray in 30 fractions, and this is being delivered twice daily as at least six hours apart as per the Teresi regimen. Excellent choice. For listeners, the Teresi regimen was established after a New England Journal of Medicine publication in 1999 that utilized accelerated radiation to 45 gray and 1.5 gray fractions BID to really take advantage of small cell lung cancer's rapid turnover rate. 
It produced the best results to date and was significantly more effective than 45 gray given in 1.8 gray daily fractions, leading to BID to become widely accepted as a standard of care for limited stage small cell lung cancer. But over time, many started to question whether conventional daily radiation therapy prescribed to over 60 gray per day would yield similar to better results. And it wasn't until a pair of modern randomized phase three trials, the Convert and CalGB 30610-RTOG0538 were unsuccessful in establishing the superiority of conventionally fractionated radiation once daily to 66 or 70 gray compared to Teresi. So Josh, how are you going to sim and contour this patient? Let's say he hasn't started his chemo yet. So I'd like to sim the patient in a vacuum mold, supine and arms up. I always get a 4D CT whenever treating lung cancer and use contrast if available so I can better delineate the pulmonary vessels from the tumor itself. If IV contrast isn't available in our department, I'd uh, order a diagnostic CT chest with IV contrast and then fuse it into non-contrasted CT simulation images. Since he hasn't started chemotherapy yet and we don't need to worry about post-induction volumes, I'm going to contour an ITV for all the pet avid disease, so this is the primary as well as the lymph nodes, and then rely on the CT to demarcate the actual edge of the tumor, given the risk of misregistration of the pet images. Now, regarding CTV margins, this can be controversial in the modern era of higher quality CT imaging. Most radiation oncologists will add five to eight millimeters to form a CTV. However, when there's a, um, some difficulty meeting dose constraints, we can consider eliminating the CTV margin as we do in lung SPRT treatment planning. Now, regarding the final PTV, we would want to make sure to confirm this with our physics group um, to see what can be achieved, but using anywhere from five to seven millimeters, depending on the complexity and reproducibility of uh, daily treatment setup should be okay. All right. And so why are you choosing to omit elective nodal coverage? So in the Teresi study, um, elective nodes were included, but recent data is suggesting that isolated nodal failures are relatively uncommon, around 2 to 3% without elective nodal radiation or ENI. So uh, ENI was not included in the more modern CalGB trial 3610, and as well as others. All right. And then how would you contour if the patient already received two cycles of induction chemo? Yeah, that's a great question. So if the patient already received chemotherapy, it's okay to only target the post-induction primary tumor. So this will be the shrunken tumor after chemo uh, in the GTV, but we want to include the initially involved nodal regions uh, within that GTV. Great. So upon plan review, your dosimetrist was able to achieve great coverage using a VMAP plan, but you notice that the spinal cord D-max is 42 gray and the mean esophagus dose is 36. What, what do you think? Yeah, so both the cord and esophagus are receiving doses that are higher than we would uh, generally like. So ideally, given our fractionation, the spinal cord D-max should be less than 41 gray. Uh, this is the constraint that was used in the CalGB trial, which is looser than the D-max constraint of 36 in the Teresi trial. For the esophagus, I'd like the mean dose to be less than 34 gray. So it's important to remember that the dose constraints used in the Teresi trial had to consider larger APPA portals that were delivering three gray per day, which is easily avoided with our contemporary IMRT planning. All right. So your dosimetrist is able to rerun the plan and achieve all planning goals, including a spinal cord D-max less than 41 gray and a mean esophagus less than 34 gray. What side effects are you going to counsel the patient on? Yeah. So the side effects naturally depend on the final radiation therapy treatment plan. But in this case, um, 
we're probably looking at some esophagitis, fatigue, and nausea as things we want to counsel on. Uh, we'd probably also want to talk about the possibility of worsening cough and dyspnea in which um, we'd want to evaluate for pneumonitis. Now, long-term, we look out for pulmonary fibrosis and pneumonopathy, which will be a risk in addition to cardiac injury and chronic dysphagia. Excellent. And I'd say the one thing you want to keep an eye out for is the uh, acute esophagitis, since about 20% of patients may develop grade 3 esophagitis during treatment, which can lead to acute malnutrition and its sequelae. So your patient completes concurrent chemoradiation with all four cycles of chemo. What's up next? Yeah, so up next, we'd want to get a restaging CT chest abdomen pelvis as well as an MRI brain. All right. So in the future, the chemoradiation is successful and the scans show a complete radiographic response. Woohoo. Great job, Josh. And the MRI brain remains negative. So what's on deck? So in patients who achieve a complete response after definitive chemoradiotherapy for limited stage SCLC, we want to consider prophylactic cranial irradiation patients who remain of good functional status in contrast to those who may be a little bit older, have poor uh, performance status or baseline neurocognitive function, where uh, a surveillance MRI brain may be the preferred option in lieu of RT. Okay. So this patient has performance status remains great. Um, and you decide to do PCI, what dose and fractionation are you going to treat to? Yeah. So for PCI, we're going to look at 25 gray in 10 total fractions. Uh, we could do this with hippocampal avoidance as well as concurrent mantine if this is tolerated by the patient. All right. So patient finishes his PCI. What does his follow-up schedule look like? So unfortunately, all patients with uh, small cell lung cancer do remain at high risk for local, regional, as well as distant metastases. Now, fortunately, that risk is highest in the first few years and then plateaus nicely. In patients like this, there is a potential for cure. Uh, during the first two years, I'd like to repeat an HNP with restaging CT chest abdomen pelvises every three months. And then in regards to surveillance imaging of his brain, probably get an MRI brain every three months in the first year and then follow that um, every half year in year two. Strong work, Josh. You did an excellent job, as always. Thank you to Dr. Drew Moganaki at UCLA for helping us review today's case. You can view the show notes online at thebeam.com. Be well, and remember to trust, but always verify.